All righty. Homework five we have is due this weekend. And I apologize that all my stuff is out of order. I realized as I was putting it up and I wasn't going to re-erase it and redo it this time. Um, observing night, which we were going to try last night. And the weather was just constantly predicted to be cloudy and to cloud up more over the course of the evening. So you should have gotten an email. I did send an email to everyone's hawk mail saying that there was nothing. So hopefully you didn't try to come out then. We're going to look for next week. I put a question mark because I just wanted to confirm the exact date with Professor Shope, who's kind of organizing it. So make sure that it's going to be next Tuesday. And hopefully I'll hear back from him and let you know for sure on, on Friday. But be the same same time, same places, everything else. Nothing else will change. We'll just do that, try to do that next, next week instead. Hopefully we'll get a better, get a nice clear night for us. Quiz 5 is for you. That will be here on the, that'll be on the 26th. That'll be up and available starting on Friday. And that will cover chapters 11 and 12. We finished 11, 12 we're in the middle of. We should be through 12. Probably not today, probably by the end of the day Friday we should be through all of 12. Better be because coming up on Monday is an exam on 10, 11, and 12. So we'll have the, the third exam will be then. And again, covering chapter 10. It also covers the extra material I gave you on the HR diagram. So there was that one other minor lecture that I gave you that was kind of separate. That's included as part of chapter 10. And then chapter 11 and 12. Um, quiz 5, this quiz 5 doesn't affect you. So the third set of solar observations, the last ones I'm going to collect, are due on the 7th of November. I put that on a Wednesday this time so I can just get them and try to give them back to you on Friday. That's the last time I'll be collecting them. So that's five points worth for your final 130 point project grade. And that's any observations you've made since the last set. I'm just I'm looking again for at least one. But if you've only made one each time, you've only got three, you're not going to be unlikely to get as many as you need by the end of the month when the project is, is due. And then we will be taking a day, one of the lab days, probably a couple weeks after that, we'll actually do a lab the lab that we'll do will actually involve going through and doing the calculations and doing the graphs. So we'll actually do an example here in class. So you don't have to worry about trying to figure out the calculations or the graphing all by yourself. We'll work through it as a group together as part of one of the labs. I'll have you turn it in so I can look at some data that I'll give you to be able to plot. And then you'll be able to you know, use that as part of, your, part of your project. But that'll be a lab coming up here. Well, that's the 7th, 9th, probably the week after that probably the end of that following week. That will give you a couple weeks after you've, done, after you've gotten the material to be able to look at it. So last quiz five here doesn't affect you. Your quiz five is, is this week. Questions? Questions? No questions. All right. Picture of the day for today. The star clouds of Andromeda. This is the Andromeda galaxy. Well, a portion of the Andromeda galaxy. We're looking at one edge of it. The rest of it would extend well off the screen up to the upper right. And the Andromeda galaxy is the nearest large galaxy to our own, about two and a half million light years away. So what you're seeing there took place two million years, two, over two million years ago. And has been, since spent that two and a half million years traveling from Andromeda to us to reach us today. So one of the things I like to do is what does Andromeda look like right now? We have no way of knowing. Whole galaxy could have blown up right after this came up to us, could have been vaporized some magical way, it'd be gone. We'd have no way of knowing about it. Not for at least two million, two and a half million years until the light got, light got to us. 
What we're looking at though, you see part of the spiral structure of the galaxy there, but you notice a difference in color as you get towards the outer portion. There are some very large star clusters here. Much larger. We looked at some of the open clusters in class. These are much larger than many of the open clusters that we're looking at. Uh, that we looked at here when we did the Pleiades. We had, to, we had to plot some stars for those. These are much, much larger clusters, so there's some evidence of very intense star formation going on in some parts of these, forming some kind of super clusters. They're much bigger clusters than we're typically used to that we see in our own galaxy. So some much larger clusters going on here. And again, many of those stars that we see right now aren't there anymore. They're probably blown up. A few of those stars have probably gone supernova. One of the things we're going to be talking about later today. But some of those stars have probably gone supernova. We just don't know about it yet. Because if they went supernova two million years ago, and it's two and a half million light years away, we're still not going to know about it for 500,000 years. So those stars could be gone. We just, we just don't, haven't had time to know about it yet. Mention that with the sun, right? The sun could have blown up seven and a half minutes ago. We still don't know about it. We still will live in you know, nice ignorance of the sun having blown up for almost another minute. Then we'll know about it once the light has time to get to us. It gets even more extreme when we look much further out in the universe. Much more, much more difficult because the distances are so much larger. Light takes a much longer time to actually get to us. Questions? Otherwise we'll go back to stars. Alrighty, so we were on chapter 12. We had just finished up the death of a low mass star, so I'm going to put that back up there again for you. Which is what we were looking at was one of the possibilities, something that can happen to a white dwarf. And I sort of mentioned that once a white dwarf forms, it's done. All it's going to do is slowly cool off. In very special cases, some, it can actually reignite itself. Not to become another star again as it was, but to actually become brighter and ignite material that has collected on its surface. That only works if, it has, if this, that star has a companion star orbiting with it. So the sun can never do this. The sun will never become a nova. It's not possible. It'll become a white dwarf star, but there's no way that it will ever collect that much material in order for it to ignite reactions on its surface. It'll become a white dwarf star and it'll just slowly cool off. But if you're in that binary system, if you're in two stars close enough together, material can transfer from one star to the other. And then you build up all this hydrogen on the surface of this very hot white dwarf star. Eventually you get enough material and enough pressure that it ignites. And it just burns very quickly. You start hydrogen burning right on the surface of the star. And that material expands out. So it'll just blow that material, it blows all that hydrogen right off the surface and then stops. So it'll blow it off the surface and that star will just go right back to being a white dwarf star. It doesn't affect the star at all. So the star will still be there, meaning they can do this over and over again. So a star can be a nova, it can go nova now, it can go nova again 50 years from now, 100 years from now, just depending on how long it takes it to gather enough material. So that's where we finished up, and then we were going to go on and look at, I can get this to work already. Okay. What about more massive stars? When we looked at the formation of stars, it really didn't matter 
whether they were like the sun or a little bit smaller than the sun or a little bit bigger than the sun. When, you're, when you look here at the end of the lives, it does make a big difference. The mass makes a big difference. That whole set I went through on Monday was just for a star like the sun. For more massive stars, a lot more goes on. In fact, they move almost, you get to the most massive stars, they go pretty much from left to right on the diagram. They don't change a whole lot in terms of their luminosity. They'll go from being a giant blue star to being a red supergiant star. <coughs> so they will change in terms of size. They're getting much bigger. You know, a star over here on the main sequence is only 10 times the size of the sun. A star, as that same star evolves, it might go 100 to 1,000 times the size of the sun, gets much, much bigger. But its brightness didn't change a whole lot. A brightness of a star like the sun is going to change by many hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times. It'll get much, much brighter than it was. And as you see their paths, as sketched out here, what they'll do over time actually changes. They'll do things a little bit differently. They don't go zipping up to this red giant branch like this. They do go directly, but this one forms helium. It just gets more and more massive and it starts to burn helium. And it starts to burn carbon. And then it goes up to, then it starts zipping up into that red giant region. A more, even more massive star might burn hydrogen, and then carbon, and then oxygen before it goes further up to that red giant region. So depending on the amount of mass tells us what is going to happen, how that star is going to end its, end its life. Like any other star, the high mass stars stay on the main sequence as long as they can burn hydrogen to helium, as long as they have a source of hydrogen to burn in their core. Once that hydrogen is gone, there's nothing else they can do. They don't have another source of, they don't have a source of energy immediately. So they're going to do exactly the same thing that the less massive star did, the star like the sun did. Okay? The core, is the core starts to collapse down. It's, now the core is all helium. So that core starts to contract. You burn hydrogen in a shell around it. Then you ignite that car, you ignite that helium, you get hot enough temperature to ignite the helium, start burning helium into carbon. So now you've got helium burning into carbon, you've got a carbon core with hydrogen and helium around it. That's sort of we left off the sun. That's where the sun finished up. The sun couldn't go and burn that carbon. It never got hot enough temperatures, didn't have enough mass to increase the temperature to allow you to burn that carbon into anything else. When you get to more massive stars, two and a half times the mass of the sun or so, you don't get that flash of helium. We talked about last time, I talked about the helium flash. That's for stars like the sun. Because it took so much time, you had to build up so much pressure in the core to get the temperature up high enough, that the material became what we called degenerate. And it just flashed. When it burned, it just burned very quickly. And it took a lot of energy to expand that, contracted, that heavily contracted core. Much more massive stars don't do that. They just start burning helium. They'll get enough, they have enough mass, they can compress the temperatures high enough without making the core degenerate, without smashing the core down to such compressed levels. So they could actually start burning helium much more gradually the way hydrogen burning began on the sun, on the sun when it was forming. As you get to the more and more massive stars, let you get less of those real sharp, jagged turns on the HR diagram. 
Remember when the sun, the sun went, went off the main sequence and it went up and then it jumped back down to here and then it went up again. It had all sorts of sharp, jagged turns on the main sequence. The more massive stars, as we looked at a couple of slides, it kind of just went back and forth. They really didn't change a whole lot. They just kind of zigzagged back and forth, but there are much more gradual changes. The more massive the star you get, the smoother the, it, it makes, the smoother journey it makes on the HR diagram until the very end of its life. When you get to the most massive stars, at the very end of their life, then they have that great big jump when they actually tear themselves apart. But the less massive stars, like the Sun, actually have more going on early, early in their um, old age. Early in their old age, as they start to leave the main sequence, they've got a lot more going on. When they burn helium, it's a lot different than when it is a much more massive star. The more massive the star, the smoother everything goes. You've got so much more material, you can condense the temperatures, condense it, increase the temperatures so that you're actually able to do everything very, very smoothly. And that's why when we looked at this, I'm going to go back two slides here. When you look at that, how you've got these big jumps, and if you recall after this it jumped back down and then it went back up again, so it had big jumps here. A little bit more, as you get to more massive stars, it's moving much smoother, just kind of zigzagging back and forth. As you ignite each fuel, something happens and the temperatures will change a little bit. It'll have more energy or less energy, so the temperatures will change. Luminosities will change a little bit, not a whole lot. But it's a very different path that we see for each of the stars. Now here is one, st one star. And one example of one of these very massive stars going through, probably getting close, very close to the edge, end of its life. So when you look deep down in here, you actually have an un, what do we call an unstable star. It's starting to lose a lot of material. It's not in the process of blowing up. It hasn't gotten to that stage. But its outer layers are not being very well bound together. It's throwing material. It's ejected a lot of material out into space. So it gives us this, there's the star is just the point down here, but it's ejected big bulges of material. So it's lost a lot of material in this process. And that's one thing we don't know very well is how much of the mass of a star is lost in some of these areas. Here's another one where you see the star is actually illuminating. So actually bursts of light from the star as it goes through different stages are actually illuminating the various clouds of dust. So you can see there's some material out here, here. If you look at the star patterns, they're the same. You can see the same sort of star pattern in there. And that's going out and you can see the actual expansion, how this dust that's been coming out is actually expanding out away from the star. Very, very close in the inner side, further, further out, and being illuminated by that star at the center. Again, another very unstable red giant star. These are the ones you're sort of waiting for. These are the ones that are going to blow themselves apart. When is a very good question. Could it be next week? Yeah, it could be. It's already happened. I mean, I can pretty much guarantee you it's already blown itself apart. Considering how far away they are, it probably has happened, but you know, are we waiting another few hundred years or a thousand years for that light to get to us? It's just a matter of, um, of waiting and actually happening to see it. A supernova explosion, which will eventually come here, has not occurred in our galaxy since the invention of the telescope. 
So we've actually never had a supernova to study in detail in our own galaxy. Lots of them in other galaxies. But in our own galaxy, there has not been one since, since Galileo invented the telescope. In fact, the last one was you know, a couple decades before that, late 1500s. There were actually two supernovae within a couple, couple decades of each other within our galaxy that were easily visible. We're long overdue for one to happen. So sometime we'll get to see, we will have a supernova explosion will occur. Just a matter of timing as to when it, whether it will be you know, relatively, relatively soon astronomically, but that could be 10,000 years from now or 1,000 years from now. Still relatively recently, soon. Doesn't help us if you want to actually get a chance to see it. Then we need it in you know, a few decades, not in, few, not in hundreds of years. Now the big difference, because all the stars, we were little stars I was sort of looking at you and showed you those tracks for before things that, you know, two and a half or four times the mass of the sun, they really do exactly the same thing the sun does in the end. They might move a little bit differently, but the end result is still the same. They're still going to form a planetary nebula around a white dwarf star. It's the most massive stars. The stars that are at least 8, 10, 12 times the mass of the sun, they've got so much material there that they can not only fuse hydrogen and helium and start fusing carbon together as those stars can, but they can fuse things like oxygen and neon and work their way up to iron. That's where it becomes unstable. They can actually go well beyond there, well beyond well beyond hydrogen, helium, you know, all the standard ones I've been talking about. When they, move, when they move on the HR diagram, most of the others were kind of straight, but were going upwards a little bit. When you've got those ones at the very most massive stars up here, they're pretty much traveling. They might zigzag a little bit, but they pretty much go from being a giant blue star to being an even bigger supergiant red star. They pretty much go straight across. Which means that their brightness really isn't changing. Remember that this is luminosity. So their luminosity isn't changing. Their brightness is staying exactly, staying exactly roughly the same. But their temperature is decreasing. Temperature increases there. They were a very, very hot star. Now they're a very cool star. Means they've gotten many, many times bigger. So they move pretty much, again, they might zigzag back and forth a few times as different um, sources of energy kick in, as they burn helium, as they burn carbon, as they burn oxygen. They may zigzag a little bit back and forth. But overall, they're just moving pretty much from the left end of the HR diagram to the right. These are the type of stars that are going to tear themselves apart in what we call a supernova explosion. So a nova was just that hydrogen that got contracted onto a white dwarf star igniting, making something that was, you know, thousands of times brighter than the star was originally. Made it get a quite a bit brighter for a short period of time, for a month or so. A supernova is quite different. A supernova is a one-time event for a star. If the star goes supernova, it's never going to go supernova again. It's not going to do much of anything again. It has pretty much torn itself completely apart. So much, much brighter. Instead of getting just thousands of times brighter than the original star was, you're talking millions of times brighter or more. Those are, these are stars that if we had a supernova in our own galaxy, you could see it during the day. And you'd be able to look out during the day. You can't see much during the day, right? You see the sun. Sometimes you can see the moon. If you look just right, sometimes you can pick out Venus as the sun is setting. 
but you can't see much of anything else. This star could this star could be so bright that it would be brighter bright that you'd be able to see it during the day. So one of these stars going supernova close enough would be something you could easily see. So what's going to happen? Well, here's a table from your text just showing what's going to kind of happen to some of these different stars depending on what their mass was. And that's their initial mass. Initial mass is very small, less than a tenth the mass of the sun, pretty much. It never gets hot enough to burn hydrogen. So you've got a big ball of hydrogen sitting there. You've got a big brown dwarf made of hydrogen, never, never produces any energy, just sits there. Brown dwarf is just going to sit and cool off. Has some some energy, can't do anything else. Never got hot enough to ignite nuclear reactions. The smallest stars between about a tenth, a little less than a tenth, and about a quarter of the mass of the sun, they get hot enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. Great. We've got an energy source. But they don't get any further in terms of forming. They, can't, they don't get hot enough to actually fuse helium. So you'll form a white dwarf star. The core will condense. But that helium will never be able to fuse to carbon. You won't hit 100 million degrees to fuse helium into carbon. So you'll have a helium white dwarf star. So brown dwarf, helium white dwarf. Next ones are the vast majority, a big, big chunk of the stars, between about a quarter of the mass of the sun and about eight times the mass of the sun. That's what this is what the sun will do. It'll form a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. Meaning that the white dwarf that forms will be primarily made of carbon and oxygen. So it will have gone through and burned hydrogen into helium. That's what it's doing right now. It'll burn helium into carbon. It'll get some oxygen too, so some, he- some carbon. Carbon, if you add another helium atom, becomes oxygen. So if it's hot enough to fuse that together, it'll actually get carbon and oxygen together in that white dwarf. And that's where it'll settle down. That'll be the vast, that'll be the vast majority of the stars will be those helium and or carbon oxygen white dwarfs. That's the vast majority of stars that exist in the universe. Because as you recall, many, many of the stars were this less than a quarter of the mass of the sun. And the vast majority of the rest of them were between, under eight, eight solar masses. So you're talking about more than 90, well over 90, 99% of the stars that exist in the universe. The more interesting things happen down here. And we don't know the exact limits. But some of the ones that are about 8 to 12, kind of in between, can get a little bit more than the carbon oxygen. They can get up to neon. So carbon. Add one helium atom, you get oxygen. Add another helium atom, you're getting up towards to neon. So you're taking that. The oxygen is now fusing. You're adding another helium. Smash that into it and forming neon. So you can get a neon oxygen white dwarf. If you get a little bit more than 12, and again, that's really approximate because we don't know how much. We looked at some of those shells that were being ejected. It's not something we can really tell is how much material the star has lost. And it will depend on how much matter it loses will tell us what goes on, what some of what goes down, down deep in the core. So this 12 is, is it 15? Is it 9? Is it 10? You know, it's a rough estimate. Is it 300? Probably not. We know it's not 2. You, know, you, can, you can rule out some things, but there's not an exact number that I can give you. But these are the ones that will likely go supernova, that will explode and tear themselves apart. If their initial mass is greater than about 12, solar masses. Now, supernovae 
a million times brighter than a nova. So instead of getting, you have some brightness in terms of luminosity relative to the sun. This is relative to the sun. So the sun is one on this scale. It means the sun is way down here someplace, right? That's 10 to the sixth. Sun's way down here someplace. So you're talking not just millions, billions, pushing up towards 10 billion times brighter than the sun. Think it's hard to take a glance at the sun, try being, you wouldn't want to be close to one of these things. Of course, a lot else would be going on and you probably wouldn't be having to be worrying about looking at it. But incredibly bright. Now you'll notice here there's two different curves. One is in green, one is in sort of a pink. There's two different types of supernovae that can occur. They get really bright quickly, very quickly. That's the initial explosion. Depending, type 2 brightens the quickest, gets extremely bright, and then fades off, levels off, and cool, and then slowly fades until it comes back to very, very cool, very cooled off, nothing much left. A type 1 supernova does a little bit different, takes a little bit, it gets bright real quick, not quite as bright as the other type, but pretty close, and then takes a little bit longer, longer as in maybe. You're talking a few days. That's 50 days worth. A few days to actually reach its peak. And then it just slowly levels off. Doesn't have that plateau where it kind of flattens for a while. It just slowly gets quicker, gets, gets fainter much, much quicker. And then just levels off and again will continue to fade out into, out into the brightness. But these are the objects, again, they're bright enough that you could actually see them during the daytime. So if one were to go off and there's Around the sun, you know, not around the sun, one of the stars that we typically see in the sky, even when we're not used to typically seeing, but you need binoculars to, would all of a sudden become the brightest, ob- bright, one of the brightest objects in the sky and would be easily visible during the day. Again, we have not had that. We have not had one occur since the late 1500s in our galaxy. Thousands of them other galaxies. We can look at all sorts of supernovae in other galaxies and study them, but we haven't had the chance to study one close in our galaxy. Why is that important? Because if we study one in our galaxy, and it's a star we've known and we've looked at for a lot of, t- lot of years, we know a lot about that star. When we see it in another galaxy, we usually the first we know of it, there it is. We don't know what the star was like that formed it. We couldn't see it before, it was too far away. All of a sudden it got bright enough to see, but it wasn't visible to us before. So it would be great in terms of studying it in order for, for us to be able to understand you know, what's going on. What type of star do we really understand supernovae? Now we had about 25 years ago now, we had supernova 1987A, which is a big one, big one. That actually occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is one of the satellite galaxies to us. So that's one of those cases where we actually had something that had been studied before. One of the few. Not quite in our galaxy, but still very close to us as compared to many of the others which we look at, which we're looking at, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of light years away. You know, getting beyond the time you can imagine, two million, it's hard to imagine taking light two million years to get to us. When you start talking about a billion years for light to get us get to us, it gets even worse. So there is there there was one that occurred about twenty five years ago that we were able to study in much more detail. But we're still waiting for that one in our own galaxy. Now, supernova, again, I told you this, it's a one-time event. Boom, it happens and there is nothing or very little left. It, the star is tearing itself apart. So, 
Unlike you've got a white dwarf left after a star, the typical star goes through its life. In some cases you can have a remnant after these explosions. In other cases you have absolutely nothing at all. And what that depends on is which type of supernova it was. Now I showed you the graphs before as to how their brightness worked. And there were two types. Type 2 is what I've been talking about. Type 2 is the death of a high mass star. That's a star that has gone through its life, fused hydrogen to helium, helium to carbon, carbon to oxygen, to neon, and so on up to iron. Once it gets to iron, it's unstable, and it tears its, uh, and it will end up exploding. I'll go through that in a little bit more detail here in a second. The other type 2 is a carbon detonation supernova. What does that mean? That's actually a white dwarf star that tears itself apart in a supernova. So there's two different things that can happen. This is the endpoint of a star going through its life. Just a really big star that goes through its life, becomes unstable, and blows itself apart. This is actually a star that has already died. This is a white dwarf star that tears itself apart for some reason. So there is a chance for a white dwarf star to become unstable and tear itself apart. It's related to the nova that we talked about. In fact, it's a similar process with one other, one other point that I'll mention as we get into more detail on these. But two different types of supernova. There really doesn't seem to be one that's a lot more common. You don't get 100 type 2s for every type 1 or 100 type 1s for every type 2. They're about equal. equal. The only way we can tell the difference, we know how they're forming. That's, not what's, that's our theory on them. What we see is with the light curves. We see how their light varies. And we saw that when a type 2 occurred, it went up very, very quickly, shot up in brightness, down, and then leveled off, and then dropped. Type 1 shot up not quite as quickly, and then just continued to level off. So we saw a difference in the light curve. So we have to actually watch them over time to really see what kind of supernova they are. When they first occur, it's not, not easy to tell. It takes a little bit of observations and watching them over time to really be able to tell you. So let's look at type 1 first. Type 1 is the carbon detonation supernova. And I said it was similar to a nova. A nova was where the white dwarf had a binary companion that was kind of feeding it and overfed it, gave it too much material and caused it to uh, start burning, start burning that material on its surface. A carbon detonation supernova is the same general process, except a white dwarf has a limit to how much matter it can have and be stable, which is about 1.4 times the mass of the sun. If it's more than that, remember there's some kind of pressure holding it up. It said it was the electron pressure. The electrons in there were sort of got as close as they could possibly get without repelling each other. And that was holding the star together. If you put enough mass on it, you start crushing it down. You break through that force, right? If you had a way, you know, the Earth has material pushing up to keep it supported. Otherwise, gravity wants to pull it down. If you could crush the Earth, push it hard enough, you'd be able to crush through that and smash, and smash down the rocks together. Well, the white dwarf does the same thing. If you exceed this limit of about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, that electron pressure pushing those electrons as close together as they can, all of a sudden you can't keep the core from collapsing. That star now collapses. So it's lost its source of uh, material kind of keeping it apart, or keeping it, keeping it together, and it collapses. 
it collapses, it heats up, all of a sudden carbon begins to burn. It's a, it's a big thing of carbon. If you compress it and get it to a high enough temperature, that carbon is going to start to burn. But instead of burning in just a little bit in the core, the entire, the entire thing is the core. You get it close enough, you push it over that limit, all of a sudden carbon fusion begins at once throughout the entire star. Tears itself apart. So instead of it being in the core where there's all these layers pushing down on it, it's got a balance where you have this nuclear explosion constantly going on in the sun right now, this happens throughout the entire star all at once and tears that star apart. The process is this exactly the same as the nova. You've got material coming from a companion and if that white dwarf is right around 1.4 solar masses, just under that limit, it's fine. 1.3, you know, 1.35, it's fine. But as it picks up enough material, eventually if you push it over that limit one time, then, you know, you're pushing something, you're pushing on something. You can push on, you can push on a ball so hard, right? Pick a balloon. You can push on it and push on it. If I push on it hard enough, it's going to go. It's going to pop. The same thing happens with this type of type white dwarf. You can push on it, all that gravity is pulling on it, but it's got enough resistance to keep itself solid. If you give it enough mass, you put enough more pressure on top of it, eventually it just collapses and explodes and tears itself apart. And that's what we're calling a carbon explosion here. The carbon starts burning throughout the entire star all at once. So not just at the core of it, not just at the core of this white dwarf, but on the surface everywhere in the star immediately it, it results in a big explosion and tears that entire star apart. So here's sort of an example sketch looking at them schematically. Here's type 1 which we've been talking about. Type 2 we're coming up to here. But type 1 got a nice binary star system here. Okay, got two stars. This star goes through its life. Here's the more massive star going through its life. Forms a white dwarf in a planetary nebula. All good and fine. Nothing big happening here. But if it happens to be right at that limit, if it forms that, you know, if you say it's exactly 1.4 solar masses and it's at 1.39, 1.38, this star eventually, you know, right now it's no big deal. You've got a star and a planetary nebula. No, no big deal. They're far enough apart. How are they going to get close to get enough together? Not gravitationally. Their orbits aren't going to change. But this one's going to go through its life and it's going to eventually become a red giant and a red supergiant star. It's going to get bigger and just by the nature of getting bigger it's going to get its outer edges are going to get closer to the star and it's going to peel material off the edge of that star. We can see we can see this in some systems. We can see where this is going on where material is being pulled off one star onto another. It forms onto a disk around that star so it sort of spirals in. When you get just enough material, when you push it over that 1.4 times the mass of the sun limit, you've reached the limit, that, co that core collapses, it starts burning carbon, carbon simultaneously throughout the entire star and it tears itself apart. So a white dwarf can eventually destroy itself, can do something else. One like the sun will never be able to do that. Sun's all by itself. There's no companion star. It's not in a binary system where another star is going to be able to get big enough and give it mass. Plus the sun is only one solar mass. It would have to gain 40% more mass. That's a lot of material to transfer. That is a lot of material to be able to transfer from another star to the sun in order to do that. 
And there's no star that's close enough to get anywhere near that kind of matter. The sun would have to get 40% more massive. And that's not counting that it's losing some matter, right? Some of the outer layers are going to be pushed off into space. It's going to lose some. So it's the more massive stars that are able to do this. Something like the sun is completely safe. Now the other one, the type 2 supernova, this is what happens at the end of a star's life. You start, go through the normal star, you're going to have hydrogen burning to helium and then helium burning to carbon. You build up all these layers. And in fact you build up a whole set of layers as you go through it. You'll have hydrogen shell and then you'll have hydrogen burning and helium and carbon and oxygen and neon and silicon and all of the different elements up to iron. Up to iron you can actually get energy by smashing things together. Because up to iron, if you smash any two elements together, smash hydrogen together, the hydrogen is more massive than the helium that comes out. The helium is a little more massive than the carbon that comes out. Carbon is a little more massive than the next element and so on. When you get to iron, if you try to fuse iron together with anything else, you're not losing mass. Now you're gaining mass. So try to fuse two iron atoms together and you're going to end up with something that is more massive. You've gained mass. Meaning that you've got to lose energy. So what happens when you get iron, when you build up this iron core, it becomes completely unstable because the temperature starts to increase. It wants a new source of energy. There isn't one. There's nothing you can do to fuse the hydrogen together to get any energy out of it. In fact, when you fuse the hydrogen together, it takes energy out. It sucks energy out of the star. You're cooling things off. You're, you're getting hot enough. You're smashing those iron atoms together. They're going to stick if you get them close enough. But you're losing energy. It's costing you energy now. And you're going to start to cool off the center of the star. Cool it off, it collapses more, right? Cool it off, it wants to keep going down. So it starts collapsing in on itself. Trying to push the temperatures up. Carbon keeps, uh, iron keeps fusing over and over again. It keeps cooling itself off. So it, it becomes a runaway. The star implodes. It doesn't explode, it implodes. So it actually collapses down onto that core. There's no source of energy. There's nothing holding it up anymore. And that entire thing will take place in hours to a day. You don't hear those times in astronomy, right? It's always, oh, it's short. It's 10,000 years. It's a million years. It's a short time. This is one thing that actually occurs in, a, in an instant almost. An instant, even a very short time to us, it will only last a matter of hours to a day that it will take. Once it builds up that iron core, there's nothing else it can do. It collapses. It collapses, it keeps sucking energy out, it builds on the collapse, and then it will collapse down, rebound, so it collapses down, bounces, and then tears the entire star apart. So you could have a remnant left behind, but the shock wave that goes out from that implosion tears the outer layers of the star apart and we see the similar kind of thing. Hey, this one detonated, this one will detonate. That's just one star tearing itself apart. Now the difference with a type 2 is that you only need one star. You don't need another star. There's nothing else involved. It's completely a single star. So if the sun were many, many times more massive than it was, then it would have been able to undergo this. As the sun is, the sun is completely safe. The sun will never undergo either types of these explosions. So we're completely safe from them, from our star at least. Doesn't mean we won't be able to see them from other, see them in other, other, in other areas. Type 1 supernovae are also important. You're going to come back and hear about those again in coming chapters. They're 
very good for helping us determine distances to distant galaxies. So we'll talk about these a little bit later. I just wanted to kind of give you the, give you the mention right now as to what's coming up. But the interesting thing that happens is with a type 1 supernova, every star that goes type 1 supernova is exactly the same. There's no difference between them. They're all exactly the same size white dwarf that's blowing up. Now this star might have been 10 solar masses or 50 solar masses or 100 solar masses. There could be quite a difference in the star. These ones are all exactly the same. That star was always 1.4 times the mass of the sun when it blew up. That means that they should all get, they should be exactly the same. So if one got so bright, then they all get so bright. Once we learn how bright one of them is, anytime we see one in a distant galaxy, we know how bright it really was. And we can use that to determine the distances. So it's actually one of our methods to be able to determine distances to some of the most distant galaxies we can see. Because we can see these over very large. We can see these things when they are many millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of light years away. So they're one good way to determine distances. And we will come back to that in chapter 15, I believe, 15 or 16. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But what's left behind? So when these explode, there certainly is something left behind. There's a remnant in either case. You're going to send the outer layers of the star out into space. In a type 2 supernova, you might have a core left behind. And you'll have the outer layers expelled out into space. There's a couple different examples here. Visual light, visual light. This is sort of zooming into this central area on the what we call the Crab Nebula. Crab Nebula is a supernova that occurred as seen from Earth in the year 1054. So little low, not quite a thousand, not quite a thousand years ago now. So a thousand years later, that star, the outer layers of that star have slowly expanded out into space. This was a type 2 supernova. So it is type 2, so it was actually a massive star that tore itself apart. And you see all the outer layers of the stars, they're expanding out into space here. And you can see the difference when you looked at that and we looked at some of the planetary nebula. Many of the planetary nebula look nice and smooth. This looked like something violent happened to it. This looks like that star tore itself apart, ripped itself apart in the explosion. So the Crab Nebula is one example of a, of a, super, of a supernova remnant, and what is left over behind. There's also a remnant left behind, that's what they're zooming into there down in the core here, that is what we call a neutron star. Now neutron stars are the subject of the next, one of the subjects of the next chapter along with black holes. And we'll look about those. But a neutron star, give you the preview, is a star, the mass of the sun, a little bit more, that has been collapsed down. Remember a white dwarf collapsed to the size of the earth? These things collapsed down to the size of a city, maybe 10 kilometers across. Same amount of material, but crushed down so much more. We've actually crushed all of the electrons into the nucleus of the atom. If you crush electrons and protons together, you form neutrons. So you've got a big, essentially a big giant ball of neutrons in space. And that's what exists at the center of some of these explosions. That's that core that got pressed together so much. It's one step just above, just barely had something that could hold it away from being a black hole. If it got crushed any smaller, it would, have been, it would be a black hole. And that would, be the next, that would be the next possible stage that you could have left over after a supernova explosion. All right, where are we? Star clusters. I'll give a quick start on this and then we'll finish this up a little bit more. This goes through the next sets on 10, 12, 6 is going through and looking at 
Um, looking at the stellar evolution, how does it work in star clusters? So you're going to see a whole bunch of these. The stars, again, are in cluster, all formed at the same time, all formed from the same stuff. The only difference is what mass they formed. So as we look very early on at a time of zero, the cluster is forming, all the stars are on the main sequence, right? Not quite. Not all of them are on the main sequence yet. You have some of them on the main sequence, and you also have some that haven't quite gotten there yet. The mass of stars, not only do they go through their lives quicker, but they form quicker. They've got a lot more material there. They condense down to be a star a lot faster than a star like the sun does. They're still in the process of forming. Stars much cooler than the sun are really way back in the process of forming. They haven't made it down to the main sequence yet. They have not yet begun to burn hydrogen in their core. And those stars are already on the main sequence. So it's not that some formed earlier. They all formed at the same time. But they started forming. But the big ones were able to form quicker. So what you notice here, this is time zero. That's when everything starts. Here at a time of 10 million years, we have the most massive stars are already beginning to go into the red giant branch phase. So they've already finished their life on the main sequence. They're done heading off to the red giant phase. Whereas some of these stars, okay, these are still nicely on the main sequence. These stars are still trying to reach the main sequence. They haven't gotten there yet. The most massive stars have already left. After 10 million years, they're gone. Some of them only live a few million years. They're gone heading off over to the red giant phase. But the least massive stars, you know, stars like the sun are just reaching the main sequence here. They're getting down there. These cooler stars haven't, haven't made it yet, have not quite made it yet to the main sequence. So while we see a grouping here, while everything forms at the same time, they don't, they don't form in the same amount of time. The big stars form a lot quicker and then go through their lives quicker. So it's quite possible that some stars in a cluster could form, go through their red giant phase, blow up as a supernova before the least massive stars have even had a chance to make it to the main sequence yet. So timing is very, is very important here. As we go a little further along, at 100 million years, so we looked at zero, we looked at 10 million years, here's 100 million years. We're still getting, most of the stars are on the main sequence. It's just those very, very coolest ones that still have not quite made it there. We see a few leaving the main sequence. You saw that in one of your diagrams that we uh, mapped out a couple of weeks ago. Um, you saw them starting to turn off. That's what we call the turnoff point tells us really the age of the cluster because it will move down the main sequence as the cluster goes through as time passes. So at 10 million years, it was way up at the top of the main sequence. At 100 million years, okay, it's a little bit further down. At a billion years, it's even further down. It starts to become a little bit better defined. It's hard to see up there in the lower times just because it takes, there aren't as many stars up there. So after a billion years, as I said, we can start to see the main sequence. We can see where these stars are turning off the main sequence, where they're leaving and heading towards the red giant branch. As we go even, well, I say, I'm sorry, as we go on, so as we go on, we see that turn becomes more and more distinct. Now, if you recall in your lab, you looked at an open cluster, looked a lot like the one in the upper picture here, maybe about 
100 million years old, ten, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of years old. You also looked at a globular cluster. When you looked at the globular cluster, when you looked at this one, you saw you know, a few stars starting to turn off there that were a little bit off the main sequence. When you looked at the globular cluster, you saw more of a curve like that. You could see a very distinct point. There's a lot more stars there. You could see a lot more of where that was turning off the main sequence, where it was leaving. Much easier to determine the ages as you get further and further down. Much harder in these very young ones because there aren't as many stars up there. There's only a handful of stars. And go up to the last one, 10 billion years. Now we start to really see all the features we talked about with the sun. Why? Because after 10 billion years, the stars that are leaving the main sequence are stars like the sun. The sun has a lifespan of about 10 billion years, so after 10 billion years after it formed, these stars are actually showing everything that the sun will do. Up through the subgiants into the red giant branch, zooming up there over to the horizontal branch, back up the red giant branch again up towards the supergiants, and then finally ending up as a white dwarf. You can actually start to see there's a lot more stars of these masses, so we start to see a lot more of, a lot more of those. You also start to see the white dwarfs. You don't see those in the very youngest clusters. First of all, they haven't had time to form. And many of those stars will actually tear themselves apart. They'll blow themselves up in supernovae and not form a white dwarf. The other ones we will be able to see, now as we get to much stars like the sun or a little bit more massive than the sun that have gone through their lives, we start to see a lot more white dwarfs. Now I'm going to go ahead and finish up and then we'll come back and I'll look at this. I'll skim you through this again one more time probably on Friday because I like you to be able to see this. And then we'll finish up chapter 12. We're almost done with We'll finish that up and go on to 13 and talk about the neutron stars in the black hole starting on Friday. Questions? No? No? All right. Have a good, have a good rest of the day and I will see you on Friday.